Hey all, welcome to our first episode of the Marked for Glory podcast. My mother, strong, lithe, and athletic, had no problem keeping up with her husband and his brother, both marathon runners. My father recalls that this was the last time his wife of almost two years would use her lovely slender legs. Continuing on their journey, after a few wrong turns, they found themselves on a steep winding road, trying to find their way back on course. The road flattened to cross the railroad tracks and my grandfather downshifted. The van stalled. The men piled out the front door, facing away from the oncoming train. The women failed to open the side door in the back seat, but my mother scrambled into the front and fell out onto the tracks. My father automatically turned mid-stride to go back to help her, certain they were going to die. Straddling the tracks, he managed to grab her under her arms. As he turned away with her in his arms, the train made impact with the van. He felt his arms pulled downward as my mother was crushed underneath the van. He was tossed aside, unconscious. My mother lost both legs, amputated a few inches above the knees, and her right arm amputated at the shoulder. That was a short excerpt from a book called Gone, A Memoir of Love, Body, and Taking Back My Life, written by Linda K. Olson. So let's go ahead and uh, listen to the episode now. Uh, Good morning, Linda. I'm glad you could take the time to join us. You're out in San Diego, correct? Yes, I am. Pretty lucky to live here. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's sunny all the time over there. You know, I actually live relatively close to the ocean. And what most people don't know is that we get what we call May gray and June gloom, which means it's overcast and chilly or cool. And everybody comes to San Diego and think, oh, I'm going to go to the beach. Well, they go to the beach and the sun doesn't come out all day. But that's this time of year. And then our most beautiful time of the year is kind of July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, Well, the reason I reached out to you was because I stumbled on your story and I decided to get your book and I've been reading it uh, recently. I'm up to about chapter five. And um, for those who the book is called Gone, by the way, for those who don't know, and um, also, for those who don't aren't familiar with your story, maybe you could give us a quick uh, rundown, I guess, like 20 years in like two minutes or something. <laughs> I can yeah. do that. Yeah. Well, what uh, the big turning point in my life came when I was 29. My husband and I went to Germany to see his parents, who my, his dad was stationed in the Navy over there. And we went on vacation with his brother and sister and we stalled on a railroad track and got hit by the train, uh, which very quickly came around a corner. Um, The crux of it was my husband and his dad and brother were in the front seat. They were able to get out before the train hit. I tried to get out, fell out of the van. My husband ran as fast as he could to get me picked me up, got me in his arms, just as the train hit the van. So it threw us apart. 
threw him back along the railroad track and I got pinned underneath the van. So when everything came to a stop, I had lost, well, I'd had train track amputations. My right arm at the shoulder, my left leg above the knee and my right leg was so badly damaged that it had to be continued, the amputation had to be completed. So I ended up being taken to Salzburg, Austria, where I went to a trauma hospital where they had surgeons waiting for me and their expertise and quickness was able to save my life. And that was the beginning of a story that has turned out to be terrific. So that's the one minute part. The, ne the next 40 years is in the second minute. Um, really quick, I rehabbed in San Diego at the Naval Hospital. I took a year off of my radiology residency to learn how to walk. My husband and I had been classmates in medical school together and we were almost done with our residencies. He was doing radiation oncology and I was doing radiology. He was in San Diego and I was in Los Angeles. So at the end of that year, I was able to go back and finish my residency. And oh, by the way, I got pregnant and had a baby at the same time. <laughs> and that was our first child. I had a second one three years later. And most of the book uh, talks about uh, learning how to do things differently and trying to fulfill my goal of being normal. I think that's probably what everybody that becomes chronically disabled or ill, they really want to just be normal. And that's what the rest of the story is, is depicting that. So, okay, we're done. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. But um, so when, uh, when you first were in the accident, I've, I've read part of this. Um, what... What did that, like once the, the weight of the situation, you came to realize that, what, what did it feel like? I know since you're a doctor, you're, you seem to be very good at sort of being analytical and compartmentalizing everything, but still it must not have been easy. Uh, it was not easy because it's just hard to believe. It's just next to hard, impossible to believe when you wake up and you look down and nothing's there. And since I was right-handed and lost my right arm, I would immediately try to do things with my right hand and nothing would happen. Would happen. So the first few weeks was a mental exercise, I think because that's when your body is healing. There isn't anything you can do. You can't walk. You're still waiting for the wounds to heal, which thankfully healed very quickly without any complication. But the only thing you have any control over at that point is what you're thinking or what's in your head. And I decided to concentrate on trying to keep that under my control rather than somebody else's. And I think that was what got me started on the right path was because from day one, when people started coming in to see us, um, they just didn't know what to do. They couldn't look at me. They would just, they were in tears and it became my job to look at them and make them laugh or make them feel better or make them feel happy because they couldn't do it. I was the only one that could do that. So that became my, that became my goal immediately was to make people feel better and make them think that this was going to work. So, uh, so since the very beginning, has your focus always been on what you can do? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> there were so many things that, well, basically, if you let the needle swing too far to the negative side, it could be really hard to get yourself out of that hole, I think. And the first thought could easily be, I can't do anything just because you're left with one out of your four extremities. I can't walk, I can't ride a bike, I can't play the organ, I can't, you know. And pretty soon what you have to do is figure out, I gotta feed myself. So you're sitting in bed in the hospital and you start thinking, what can I do with this hand? I can drink a cup of coffee, I can learn to write, I can brush my hair. So I be it became a game for me to do everything possible in that hospital room. Um, 
to start becoming independent, which was slow, but yeah, exactly. Well, it's a choice to remain positive too. Yeah. Right? You can, you can let it eat away at you and, and then it'll affect you physically. It'll oh. manifest itself physically. Without a doubt. Yeah. And it's really easy to just keep your eyes closed. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that off and on for the first year, because if you don't look, or in particular, when you go to sleep and wake up, it's a real sense that as soon as you wake up, everything will be normal again. And I would go back to work and do everything. So it was this constant, don't look. If you don't look or you keep your eyes closed, it's not real. It's, it's pretty scary. <laughs> um, how did you... I, I get the sense that you're very independent and you like to, you like challenges and things, but so in that way, it must have been really hard, right? And how, how did you balance the want to be independent and want to do things for yourself and realizing that you had to let go of some things and get people to help you? When you're in the hospital and on day two, you can't do any, you can't go to the bathroom by yourself. You can't do anything. You're at the, the bottom. You don't go any lower than that. And I think it helped to realize that every hour and every day was going to get a little tiny bit better as I started moving and started figuring out how to do things. Um, and I guess I made it kind of like a game. Um, it would be time to eat. Well, I could hold the fork in my left hand. I was right-handed, so now I have to learn how to use my left hand. Well, I could pick it up and I could eat, but I couldn't cut things. So I could do some things and I couldn't do the other. And so I'd have to look at the person or the nurse and I'd say, can you cut the food for me? And that would make me, it was a two-edged sword because you would be glad there was somebody there, but distressed that you couldn't do it for yourself. So it did two things. It made me start learning how to be graciously dependent, which took a long time to be graciously dependent. Sometimes I'm still not graciously dependent. And it also gave me the challenge of one little thing at a time. And I think that's what made it doable was I was disabled enough that I could only do a little bit at a time. And every time you do something, you turn around and go, look, look what I did. And you pat yourself on the back and you smile and then you find the next thing you need to do. But you're right. My biggest goal was to be independent. When Dave and I were doing our residencies, he lived in San Diego and I lived in Los Angeles. And my immense desire was to go back to living by myself, which I was able to do with accommodation. Could I live by myself in a house that has not been adapted? No. Could I live in a house, live by myself if I didn't have an adapted car? No. So everything I do, um, I do with assistance of some type. I mean, I can go and be on my own for a week or two weeks living by myself because it's all set up that way. So um, I'm always cognizant of the fact that I'm I'm independent, but it's only because I'm I'm surrounded by things that have been set up so that I can do things on my own, which is huge. So how, are you the same way? Do you kind of have that same feeling? Well, yeah, sometimes, I mean, thankfully, I'm not in as much of a situation as other people in the community. Like, I know you must know people with Parkinson's who are just really in a bad spot. Yes. And uh, thankfully, I'm not there yet. I'm working hard, but I can see by your story that I have a lot harder to work. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm, and I'm intimidated at the same time. Um, so what I wanted to ask is, how did your medical knowledge and experience help you deal with uh, the situation you were in? I think it was really beneficial at the beginning because I was very accustomed to being in hospitals. 
So that was not frightening. I knew what was happening when I could look at my arm and my see the lines and things that were, you know, in feeding me and giving me fluid. Um, so I knew the system. I also was able, to, and my husband, we, they put us in the same room. And so the doctors would come in and talk to us and they would talk in the language they normally talk and we could understand it. Um, in particular, it was helpful for my husband because he was a ra doing radiation oncology and his way of looking at the accident was, he told me many times that first few months, he said, I've learned so much from my patients. And he says, they're a courageous group of people, many of whom will go on to die, but many of whom will get better. And he said there, what he'd learned from them was that you, you take a day at a time and you set goals for yourself and you have to learn to accept what is out of your control. And he said, I've learned so much from them about learning the value of living a day at a time. And that's probably one of the biggest lessons that both of us got from medicine immediately on was today, I mean, look at today and be grateful for it um, because we'd seen so many people that were worse off. And I think most people when they're injured or chronically ill, they all, I think they, we all look around to find somebody that's worse off than us because the attitude is if they can do it, I can do it. And you just need that. Maybe it's competition. Maybe it's just the knowledge that somebody has worked really hard and it's paid off. I don't know what the psychology is, but it's really helpful to look around you and say, I, I can, if they can do it, I can do it. So, and part of that's why I wrote the book because I realized finally that I had 40 years of showing that you can do it. <laughs> so. Right. And I think there's something like, you know, uh, when I've noticed or I've thought about this before, having a chronic uh, disorder and you have the Parkinson's on top of the, uh, the amputation, right? Yes. <laughs> so it's not like, it's not like you're going to wake up and it's going to go away, right? It's not like when you have a broken leg or something that isn't ideal, like broken ankle, and it heals, and then you just go back to the way life was, right? Well, that's exactly, that's why when I learned to write with my left hand, I mean, within two days of the accident, they brought me a pen and paper and said, here, it wasn't like I was going to just wait for six weeks and be able to use my arm again. So you're right. Everything that happened, it was clear. There was no waiting period. It was just starting over again. What I find very interesting is to be living in two different sets of circumstances. Having been an amputee for over 40 years, I can look at that now and say, becoming an amputee, losing an arm or a leg or how many arms and legs you lose, it happens right away. Well, for many of us, it happens right away. Sometimes it's a slower process, but that's pretty much the bottom. Things tend to go up from there. Right. Parkinson's and the neurodegenerative diseases that we're facing are very different because they can be plateaued and there can be days where it goes up and down. But in general, as you know, it's going to be a slow decline. And what's different about Parkinson's is I'm discovering I've got this happy gene. I've got this dose of I can control anything. Right never dealt with anxiety. I've never dealt with depression. I've never dealt with any of those things. And Parkinson's brings a different, and it's not a mentality. This is not a fear of having Parkinson's. It's not a fear of things. It is a dopamine depletion. So my brain makes me anxious. It's not me being worried about something. It just, it's out right. of my control. That's so different from being an amputee that I'm, I'm, learning a whole different way of living now. And I'm, I've read some of the things you've got on your blog and you've clearly probably got more experience than me with this kind of the mindfulness or the breathing. I mean, you start looking for things that I always thought were hokey <laughs> right? and say, I've got to find something that lets me get a little bit more control of this, which this disease, which you can't get control of. So amputations were easy to get control of. Right. Um, well, that actually um, 
I'm going to skip ahead to one of my later questions because you kind of addressed it. So after having three amputations, how long was it before you got uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's? Uh, I got diagnosed six years ago now. I'm 71. So it was 30, it was 30, not quite 40 years after after my accident. I was 29 when I became right. a PT and I was 65 when I became, when I got my diagnosis of Parkinson's. So. Right. And forgive my ignorance, but is Parkinson's genetic or is it? Um, no. Well, maybe 10 or 15% of it is genetic, at least what they understand now. Um, so much of it isn't, well, as with all neuro diseases, very little understood. Right. Much of it may be exposure related. There's concern about pesticides and it's not clear what it is. And right now it's not even sure where it starts. There's a lot of theory now that it starts in the GI tract and works its way up the vagus nerve up to the brain. And the manifestation in the brain is something that's many years after you actually started having the abnormality. So, Right. Um, so my question is, uh, after going through the accident, losing three limbs in, say, 30 years goes by, and quote-unquote, you've overcome this trauma, right? And then you find out you have Parkinson's. Does, does your, uh, the, your success in overcoming the first thing have any impact on your ability to deal with the second thing? I'm sure, I'm positive it does. Because my first reaction <laughs> when I sat in the neurologist's office that day and my husband was sitting next to me and Dr. Hauser said, I think you have Parkinson's disease. And I sat there for about 30 seconds and I turned over and I looked towards my husband. And I said, well, <laughs> I guess it won't be the worst thing that ever happened to us. I've got wheelchairs. I've got a car that's adapted and you know, we'll just figure out how to change again. But what really bothered me was it was going to be my husband getting hit again, giving another job as being a caregiver again with a disease that was, you know, not going to have as pretty an ending. So I think to begin with, I, I ignored it because my symptoms weren't so obvious. No one, in fact, because I use a wheelchair, I don't, it's hard for it's hard for most people to tell that I have Parkinson's disease. I don't have a tremor. I don't stumble because I'm sitting in a wheelchair. And your voice is very clear. My voice is good so far. Yeah, all these things are are still in my favor. So I spent probably the first year pretending in my mind that I didn't have it. And you can do that early on, especially if you've already been disabled. And I started speaking. I started looking at the things that I was having to do a little bit differently. And that's, I'm, I'm, I've been adapting for 40 years. When something new comes up, I have to sit and scratch my head and be, how am I going to do that with one hand? And I'm still figuring out. Yeah, you have to get creative with it, right? All, all the time. So I'm used to being creative. I'm still, I just a few years ago figured out how to file my fingernails instead of having somebody cut them. And then I figured out how to, how to, uh, take my fingernail file and scotch tape it onto my Kindle on the outside of my Kindle. So I didn't have to hold, I could put it somewhere and just scrape my fingers across it. So <laughs> you're constantly figuring out how to do things new. So yes, having been disabled already made Parkinson's easier to deal with because I knew I could come up with ways to do it. Uh, but the parts that I'm finding hard are the anxiety parts the parts that are really hard to control because they're not physical. And I'm intrigued by how people are doing that and spending more time trying to figure that part out. So, yeah. Well, from what I understand, like a lot of, um, not, not so much the mainstream, like literature and stuff, they're kind of catching up, but a lot of people that are doing big things in Parkinson's or MS or whatever, are maintain a high level of physical activity, right? Yes. And so in that sense, 
um, having to recover and go beyond your amputation must have only helped or prepare you in some way, at least physically. It was easier to, well, let me backtrack to the first year or the first six months of being an amputee. I had to get strong enough to be able to walk. That was my goal. And that was, you know, three, four hours of physical therapy every day to begin with. And because my husband was in the Navy, I ended up at the Naval Hospital here in San Diego with a bunch of sailors and young guys and became a competition between me being the only female in the room and being older than the rest of these guys. And we just made it into a game. And so I learned how to do a lot of things. And the problem with Parkinson's is you need to be doing a, a very large variety of physical activity, walking, running, bike riding, swimming, boxing. Those are the things that I don't do well. Uh, and because I've got above knee prostheses on both sides and no arms. So my hardest thing is to find exercises that I can do. And I, I do floor exercises without my legs on. I can ride one recumbent bike, one type, because of the way, it, you know, a lot of bikes, the feet go out in front of you. My prostheses won't work that way. I have to have right. them go up and down. So I'm, I'm struggling with that. I, in fact, this morning I rode the bike for 20 minutes. I did some stretching and things like that because when I start getting this anxious feeling or internal tremors, I'm discovering that I need to be active. So <laughs> I have people, I'll, I'll be sitting somewhere and I'll lean over to stretch my back and I'll stay there for a minute. And all of a sudden somebody's up, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, because they don't know what I'm doing. Here's this person that looks weird to begin with. <laughs> She's got her head down below her knees or something, or her knees aren't there. So I get a lot of, uh, I get a lot of people wondering what I'm doing, but yes, uh, this is the, this is one of the challenges that I'm not completely successful with yet. So. Right. And then I imagine it must be, extra challenging because like say if someone was just simply in a wheelchair right they could go out and find uh wheelchair boxing classes or you know something catered to them but how many triple invitations are you gonna find like people yeah. that have figured out how to do boxing or wrestling or any whatever. kind of cardio yeah. really right <laughs> right Cardio is really hard. I mean, that's yeah. the hardest thing I'm getting is I can't get my heart rate up. And the, and the other dilemma is somebody the other day said, well, you know, get a bicycle ergometer type thing. Well, I've done that in the past. And, you know, you don't want to trash the one extremity you've got so you right. can work it. So it's this constant um, battle between using it and not abusing it, I guess. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so let me just go back a bit here. Whether after the... Uh, the amputations or after you got diagnosed with Parkinson's, did you ever feel sorry for yourself? And how did you get over it? I did. And I tried not to let people see that. I, I have two particular instances that don't leave my mind. And one of them was at probably seven or eight months after the accident. Dave and I, I had my artificial legs. I was walking a little bit. We went into a restaurant and this is gonna be very politically incorrect, but I remember walking into this restaurant and sitting down and two or three tables away was a very obese woman. And I remember just sitting there and I just started to cry a little bit because I thought, why couldn't this have happened to her? She's she's not doing anything. She's, she, you know, she's just sitting there eating. I mean, it was a stupid way to think about things, but I just, I was just feeling sorry for myself. And I felt like it shouldn't have happened to me. It should have happened to somebody else. And it, she just happened to be the person sitting there that I could direct my anger toward that day. And the other one I remember very clearly was right about a year after the accident, I went around the side of the house one afternoon I was in my wheelchair and I just sat over there and I cried and cried and cried <laughs> and I cried it out. I finally said to myself, you can feel sorry for yourself. 
And there will be times when you're going to feel sorry for yourself, but you're so much better off than so many other people. Again, that I'm better off attitude helps. And then I started realizing I had a great education. I was going to go back and finish my residency. I was going to, I had the potential for a, a wonderful career as a physician in radiology. And it was becoming clear to me at that point, it was now a year out, that Dave was probably not going to leave me. And that was the the huge advantage that I had, probably the biggest advantage I had was a husband who didn't run away. And I kept thinking, if I can keep him happy and he doesn't leave me, then we can do anything. So my down periods were very few and people ask us that all the time. And Dave will tell you, he says she had them, but they would last about a minute. He said, he would call them the black hole. And somehow I was able to just feel it and then say, I'm too, I'm lucky. And here are the things that make me lucky. And that was what would pull me out of the black hole. But I will, I will tell you, my people have given me so much credit because they can see the disabilities. So they see me as the person that has something wrong. They can't see the mentality that it took for my husband to stay and to work hard and to be my support and to push me and pull me whenever I needed to. So, um, Whenever I got down and got blue, I just thought, you can't do that. Everything is in, you've got everything working for you. And that was my way of pulling myself out of those holes. Right. So essentially, a gratitude is what you tried to bring to this situation. Yes. And I didn't know the word gratitude then. I didn't know what gratitude was at that point. That was just because now that's become a popularized. Right. Theory. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're right. It was gratitude. Still is. Yeah. Right. Um, and and maybe a little bit of uh, focusing your energy on other people. Certainly when your daughter was born, that must have been the case. Without a doubt. And because she was born about a year and a half after the accident, I got pregnant nine months after the accident. So it I, one of those things that just before I went back to finish my residency took my mind off of me. I had to stay healthy because I didn't want her to be ill. I had to finish studying for my board. So I was constantly being distracted by other goals, being pregnant, having a baby, finishing my residency, taking my boards. So I didn't have very much time to feel sorry for myself. And the other thing you discover is you only have so much energy and it takes a lot of energy to do all those things. And if you do that, pretty soon you're exhausted and you go home and go to bed and start all over again. So it helped, yes, to be distracted by a family. <laughs> and um, your, your support system has obviously been very important to you. And I, I've uh, read through the part in the book where um, basically your husband helps you come up with a few lists of people who could um, be on different uh, team, different categories of teams that support you. How did you end up selecting people to be on this, those teams? Like what were your criteria? Well, you basically, you look at your friends. I mean, that's the place you start. You look at your family and your friends. And I think we, we antagonized some of our family early on because we felt Dave in particular felt it was very important that we solve our own problems and that we do it as a team. I mean, that was, he had that goal from day one. It, your family usually doesn't, at least in today's society, our families don't live close to each other often. So they aren't going to be your long-term solution. So your friends are the people that are closest to you. And you kind of look at, we did, we kind of looked at those people and said, are they, how, how are they able to help us? Or are they, would they be willing to help? And you kind of had to winnow through that group of people because you kind of could look at some in your mind and say, I'm not sure this person will have the ability to help us or the time or the, or the, the, I don't know, you know, you just kind of say this isn't going to work. And then you look at other people and say, these are people will do anything for us. Um, so it, it took a little bit of 
thinking about, and some of them were physical needs, some of them were uh, emotional support needs. So you kind of, I think we kind of just slowly within that first two weeks came up with people that we knew we could count on for different things. And for, for the most part, it turned out to be that way. Um, so some people in our community are, are struggling with this idea that like they have this life that they've been given through, I guess, uh, um, whatever diagnosis or whatever accident some people can acquire. In my case, ataxia, some people can acquire it through a head injury or something, but that the, the um, basically, they find themselves in a set of circumstances which are different than what they want for their life or what they pictured. So maybe someone starts out wanting to go to the Olympic, like competing in the Olympics as a swimmer, and then they're saddled with this disease, and that kind of changes the plan. Uh, do you have any advice for people dealing with those thoughts or feelings? I'm glad you asked the question because again, I was able to continue on the path that I had chosen. So I could become what I wanted to become. So I, I was lucky. I like your question about an Olympic swimmer because I assume that that would be a harder mentality to work your way through because you know that's going to be taken away from you so you have to not only get up and open your eyes every day you've got to come up with a new job or a new career or you've got to get a new education so my way of thinking about that has always been so go back to the being a swimmer what did you like about it could you coach could you become a teacher and be the coach of the swim team. I mean, there's a lot of things that you come at from a, you can, my first thought would be to keep the interest in what I had, even though I can't do it. Are there different ways that I can angle at it, that I can bring my knowledge and my passion for it? And as much as anything, sometimes if you, and I, the reason I say this is my daughter plays water polo and it's a kid in college and she's got a daughter now and she's coaching water polo and you watch people that can't do things anymore or don't do things and you see how their mind takes the sport apart and they become good at becoming a role model for somebody else and even if you're in a wheelchair you bring a whole lot of attitudes to a young person or a group of people that in addition to learning how to swim and do a flip turn or whatever how to deal with adversity. So I would tell people to, first of all, look at what you can't do anymore and see if there's still a way of being in that circle. And if there's not, I think you probably need to go for count, you know, occupational counseling and you need to find a new path because you can't just sit home and do nothing. Even if, even if you think that's the case, don't do it. You've got to get outside. <laughs> and I, I found, I don't know if you found this, but like my brain kind of works differently now because let's say I have to go slower. I have to be a bit more methodical about some things and maybe built in some adaptations into my fitness program. Um, that often quote unquote normal people who don't have the same problem, they overlook these small little details because they simply don't have to think about them. That's for sure. Everything, everything I do has a backup plan. If I get in my car to go somewhere, I've got a book stuck down there in case something happens and I have to sit and wait. Or if I plan on going to the store and can't find a place to park, I have two other things on my list where I can. So I'm, I'm constantly have a backup plan with other things that can be done or I can do. And if I'm stuck and can't do anything, I uh, start all over again and go back to home and, and, you know, sit down and find a different, find a different path. But you're right. Everything I do is, is constantly being thought out because 
if I stand up now, it's gotten harder for me to stand up with my legs on. Now I stand up next to a wall or a corner so that if I lose my balance, I'm gonna fall forward. I'm gonna be able to touch something. So everything I do, every motion I do is constantly being evaluated in my mind. What's safe? Can I do it? If I can't, how can I readjust myself? So yeah, it's it's time consuming. <laughs> yeah, not to mention tiring. Sometimes you're so busy thinking about everything, you just get tired at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. We never run out of things to do if you're disabled. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is a, a thought that I've been thinking of uh, thinking of lately, and I'm wondering what your thought is about this. So given the uh, all you've experienced so far in the full life you've led up to this point, in spite of having, uh, in spite of losing like three of your limbs, and you've gone on to write a book and you speak and help inspire other people and do all that great stuff. Um, what is your feeling about the accident or diagnosis now? Well, when you, um, I, I'm not going to tell you the punchline of the book, but somewhere in the first couple of, oh, there's a chapter, chapter two is called The Pact. And it was an agreement that Dave and I made on the third night after the accident about how the accident happened. And we made a decision as to how we would deal with telling people about the accident, because you know, within 24 hours that you're gonna look like this for the rest of your life and you're gonna to have to be answering questions. Well, what happened to you? Well, so we came up with a line. We were traveling in Germany and we stalled on a railroad track and got hit by a train. Um, that pact came to its end fruition four weeks ago when Dave's father passed away at almost 94 years old. And it, it made us realize that we had done the right thing. We had taken control of our lives and we had a family that supported us because of a decision we made three days after the accident. And I could put my hand on my father-in-law as he, we, we got called over to where he, he, he died in his sleep. So we were able to see him the next morning and I could put my hand on him and I had no hard feelings. I knew my children had grown up with a loving grandma and grandpa in spite of this accident where we were all traveling together. And I just thought it, it's done. We've, we've come full circle and what we, what we chose to do because of an unavoidable stupid accident um, turned out okay because we, we made some decisions early on that we weren't going to look back. We weren't going to lay blame. We weren't going to say, what if we were just going to say, forget about it and not talk about it. And I have to tell you, people wonder, well, do you talk to your father-in-law or your mother-in-law? We never, we didn't need to. Everybody knew what happened. We, there's nothing you could undo about it. Going to talk about it to a psychiatrist wasn't going to help. It was, if you, if you had the support, I'm not saying you shouldn't go talk to a psychiatrist because I think they have enormously uh, useful, to, uh, they're enormously useful, but um, I think that you can take control of things, more control of things than we often think about. And like I say, four weeks ago, I could look at my father-in-law and say, this has been a wonderful life, so. Before I let you go, I wanted to, there was one question I noticed in an interview that you did. Um, it was about your Parkinson's diagnosis. So at first, I understand you weren't entirely sure you had Parkinson's. So you, you wanted to uh, confirm that and you you did like a nuclear scan. Maybe yeah. you could tell me what that was about. Um, the study that I had done was called a DAT scan, D-A-T, and I can't tell you what that stands for, I'm not sure, 
but it looks, it images the brain and the part of the substantia nigra that shows up, it, it doesn't pick up the nucleide. And so when they take the pictures, they can tell that part of those cells are missing because of an absence of activity. And mm -hmm. I remember sitting there watching those images come up on the screen. And as a radiologist, I knew what that meant. And I just sat there and thought, it's real. You know, this is, this is, as I say to people when I give my talk, this is another amputation. Although this is part of my brain that's gone now. And that's different than losing your arms and legs. It's, it's the yeah. control center up there. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, um, thanks a lot for writing such an inspiring book and sharing your story. And um, are you working on any other, like when did, when did your book come out? Did it come out last year? It came out at the end of October last year. So it's been out okay. for about six months now. So, yeah. Okay. So you're probably going to uh, still work on promoting that and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Before I, you start to work on your next book, I, I don't. I don't have another book inside me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I figured that one was enough. And to be honest with you, there's so many good Parkinson's books out there that I feel like the world doesn't need me to write about Parkinson's. I think that I had more of a story to tell with being an amputee. On the other hand, I think I would like to continue to talk with people like you doing book club things. I like the inner informal interactivity and i do some inspirational speaking too with the parkinson's communities I, that's who i've really felt i've got a connection with i don't think i ever connected fully with the amputee community because i was busy i was busy raising my children having a family a job parkinson's is a different it's a different beast and i'm i feel more connected to them and more like I have something to say to them because I've been disabled for so long that I bring that experience in a positive way to people to let them see that, you know, we may look funny, we may do things differently, but we can still have a good time. We can still travel, you know, just don't worry about what people think about you. Just do things as long as you can and just keep trying, just keep adapting until you can't adapt anymore <laughs> until you're dead. Right. Yeah. And, um, I think an important message you share throughout the book is if you can do it, I can, or if I can do it, you can do it. Yes, exactly. Love, love that message. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, and I, and I want you to be able to laugh along the way. You can get down on the floor and butt walk race with me or whatever. I want you to, to look at these things and get a giggle, you know, do make it, make it feel better because you can't do things doesn't mean you can't do them so i've seen you butt walk you're fast <laughs> i am <laughs> we're trying to figure out how to make that into a uh, like an ice bucket challenge we're doing a little bit of work on that right now and to try and raise some money from parkinson's so we'll uh, stay in tune and see if we get it going or not and i'll, I'll I've, I've, I haven't seen it but right now i'm picturing a black and white video speed sped up with maybe some uh, 1920s style music. Oh, 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 that's very clever. I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll get you working on this. That's very yeah. good idea. Yeah, yeah. It's easy. You can find. Go to YouTube. You can find my butt walk racing on my on my web page there. So yeah. Cool. Um, okay. I, I was wondering, do you have any like? Um, how do you deal with back pain? Because you must you must get back pain. I do. Um, and if, sorry, I believe after the accident, you actually broke your back, correct? Yeah, I read that too. Yes. That was the most painful part of the accident for the longest period of time was my back pain. And over the years, um, I, I change it by standing up or walking or sitting down or stretching out or lying flat. Um, we have, you know, electric massagers and all over the house as we've gotten older. It's like, okay, here's the massager. Would you massage my back? Um, you know, nothing more than Advil, heat. I had, a, I had a huge fear that I would be hooked on opioids. So I did not take much in the way of pain medicine. So exercise, I would say is my biggest thing, using heat, Advil, and moving, moving as much as anything. So, and making sure, you know, I don't have a condition that needs surgery. So number one, as a physician, you have to make sure you're you're not ignoring something that needs to be treated, but most of us don't have those things. So, yeah. Um, 
sorry, one more thing before I let you go. So, um, like, I mean, uh, a lot of people in my community or other communities, like the neuro, the generative one is a big community. And uh, like, obviously we're all human beings and we were created we're with bodies to move. We were meant to move, right? And, but these conditions have a nasty habit of making us not feel like moving, right? Exactly. Which, which kind of makes our situation that much worse, right? Yes. So how do you, how do you deal with that or combat that feeling? Um, I'm getting that more and more. I mean, in the last six months, that has become one of my overwhelming problems, to be honest with you. And so I find myself when I'm working at the computer, I'll start, I'll lean over and stretch. I will make myself stand up. I, I make myself put my legs on every day and I will go stand up over in the corner between a shelf or something for 10 minutes. I'll put on um, an audio book or something to make myself do it because otherwise I'll do it for a minute and say, oh, that's enough. So I'm having to trick myself to do things to move. Um, I do a lot of stretching in the, you know, about every hour I start feeling anxious. So I'll start doing jumping jacks, sitting in my wheelchair. Um, I'll do, I'll do my arms back. I, I am making myself, um, and it makes me feel better for the next half hour or so it gets the wiggles out of me. It's not wiggles, but it gets that tension and anxiety. Um, so I, I wiggle a lot more than I used to. In fact, I look weird part of the time because I'm, you know, and I'm, I don't have a dyskinesia that makes me writhing or anything like that. These are intentional exercise moves that I do to, to make my, make myself feel better because I can't rock, walk or run. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thanks a lot for taking the time to be with us today. And, uh, for anyone watching, go ahead and uh, get Linda's book, Gone. And what is the subtitle in there? It's Gone, A Memoir of Love, Body, and Taking Back My Life. Right. By Linda K. Olson. And I will leave a link to that book uh, down below so you can buy it from Amazon. But uh, thanks for your time, Linda. And uh, have a good rest of your morning. Thank you to both of you. This was fun. Yeah. I appreciate it. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hopefully you enjoyed that uh, short discussion with Linda K. Olson. Uh, make sure to look at the links that I've included um, to buy her book on Amazon. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Wherever you're hearing it, either on Anchor, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever else we have it on. Um, and if you want to check out our website, you can go to www.markedforglory.com. That's the number four. Um, or you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash marked for glory. Bye for now.